Hey guys, welcome back to the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast. It's uh, everything for center fire and rim fire. You can come over here and and uh, and visit with us about it. Um, listen, don't forget we have the Rifles Only Accuracy Podcast email. That's R O A P at riflesonly.com. You can send in your questions for that. I've got a couple of questions that we're going to get taken care of first. Rattle out of the box this morning after a, a bit of an intro here from stuff we've been doing, and then uh, and then we can get it keep. Keep those questions coming in. Uh, first of all, uh, introduce with me again, Dave Thomas. How you doing, Dave? Hey, uh, Jacob. How, how's it going? Yeah, it's been a. Uh, I guess we haven't haven't done one of these in a few weeks. We've been both been busy and and all kind of other stuff going on. Yeah, I just finished up uh, nine straight days of training down here at Rifles Only, and before that, you and I both were up in Minnesota. That was a good trip. Um, we were out there with um, the King of Point Two Eight Miles. Uh, we got to do a couple of classes out there and help out with the. Uh, help out with the match i know you competed in that match how was it uh it was it was it was pretty good there were i guess it was uh pretty much two matches so the the he had intended on doing a two-day uh prs style whatever you know a practical match but just the weather it was they'd been through like two months of sun and then that weekend it decided to rain so he ended up shortening it down and just did the one day on uh saturday so it changed up the course of fire with the with the time it made it pretty interesting um it was, uh, I would say, tough would be the way to describe it. I think there was 114 possible points. If you had 50, you were in the uh, top 10. So it was a pretty humbling match. I think it was, it was, it was interesting. And then the next day was the actual, I guess, uh, what people think of when they came to that king of point two eight was the ELR. And I normally don't get into ELR stuff, but that was a lot of fun. I, I, I think we stretched it all the way out, at, or you could go all the way out to a little bit over 500 yards. I think I got to the 450 or whatever, and then I, I came up dry. Yeah, yeah, I know that. And we had some of those people that went through, they actually hit beyond 500. I think it's 510 or 515 or something like that, but it didn't have enough hits to actually actually get the king title. Uh, yeah, that they were going for that world record, and I think it's pretty tough. I think right now is, like, including a cold board, you have to go up, uh, just get up there and uh, shoot. You have to get three impacts out of three at uh, whatever it is, 510 or whatever, with a, with a rim fire on something like a 12-inch plate. So it's it's, it's a little tough. Yeah, it was pretty serious. You know, that there was a very interesting, interesting match. You know, I, I ran one of the stages up there for it and, you know, it's a spinner target and then another target that you could get points for. Uh, I know that I looked around to some of the other, other stages that he had, but, uh, but man, Brian Autry did a really, really good job. I, I thought the, the most interesting thing is applied ballistics being there with their, with their Doppler radar. Uh, that was a really good support that they did. And of course, uh, BNT Industries su- supported it. Uh, Troy, uh, can't remember his last name, but he was up there with all of his stuff. He's got some sort of he does the defat company up there. Yeah, yeah. And since then, we we started carrying the defats here in the rifles only pro shop. They're not up on the website yet, but we already received all of our inventory. And so I need to talk to him and make sure that I'm giving out the right information for it. But he's the guy who actually came up with it. You know that that dry fire training aid, and um, and it's pretty cool. We actually had to use it uh, during the class because oh, yeah. they had had sun forever, and then it seemed like when we got there. I mean, we had everything. We had rain. We had rain season. We had hurricane season. We had summer. Uh, about the only thing we didn't get while we were there was Minnesota's famous for is ice and snow. But we had every other weather that you could imagine. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was definitely interesting. The, the weather came down, and that, that defect kind of I don't want to say saved us because it, it cleared up. We would have done it, but uh, it would have been more dry classroom stuff. And and that defect really let us go over uh, 
think we were working off tank traps, a ladder, just props inside, and, and it really helped a lot. Yeah, and that was a that's a, that's a really nice place that we were shooting at up there too. So I, I mean, it was it was very cool. The the accommodation was good. They fed us every day for lunch. You know, mm-hmm. throughout the entire nine days we were there, it was awesome. It was great. We just had a great time. Yeah, and his I think the the biggest part of that. I mean, it was a fun match and all that. But he did it. I believe it. I hope I'm not butchering this. I think it was called Soldier Six, uh, and it's for uh, I believe they provide canines for uh, military and law enforcement. Basically, when you get out. Uh, more or less emotional support dogs and they supply it. And I think they supply most everything free of charge for, for vets and, and law enforcement. And I, yeah, I, they do. They do. And and I can't think of anyone. I know it would be too many to list. Anybody that's ever supported anything on any prize table was pretty much there. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was a, that was a crazy, crazy prize table. Well, I got to get Brian on sometimes so he'll have a chance to, to visit about that. But I know he did a really good job up there. It was, it was fantastic. I had a great time. Uh, before we get into it, I had a couple of questions that I was going to, uh, did I write it down? Okay. Yeah. All right. So some of the questions that have come in for the, uh, ROAP, uh, one of the guys asked about the hearing protection that I'd spoken about in an earlier, mm-hmm. in an earlier podcast. And he just said, apparently I cut out whenever I was talking, but it's a Peltor Tactical 500. They're available on Amazon, like 120 bucks. It's Bluetooth to your phone. Um, I use them all the time out here. And to be honest, like I said during the podcast, I know that there are better systems out there. I know that there are better systems that are, you know, in the ear Bluetooth, um, you know, uh, just that have probably better sound reduction. But the reason I like these is that they're cheap and I am clumsy and I lose them and I leave them on the range and then they get run over. And so I'm able to go out and it doesn't really hurt my wallet so much. It does, you know, electronic hearing protection to me is kind of like a throwaway item. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to, you know, have something that's going to work. So typically I keep a couple of those sets and just put batteries in them as I need them. But it, it's a really good one. Um, I really, I really enjoy them because they're just, they're just simple. And at that price, I don't really expect them to last that long and they don't. Uh, but you know, it's not with me anyway, cause I'll lose them or crush them. But at any rate, I just wanted to get that one, that one answered. Uh, the other one, uh, guy had gotten, he'd gotten a new 308 Savage to shoot, um, to shoot some of the, the, uh, mill class or something like that. He, anyway, he had a, okay. he sent me a picture. He said that there was, a um, a void in the, in the chamber and he wanted to know, should he just go ahead and shoot that gun the way it was or to go ahead and have it fixed? Well, I, I mean, the thing about it is, if it, he said his accuracy was good with it. And I'd say with the, and I looked at the picture and it looks like it was just like a one little, it looks like a little wart on there, but mm-hmm. you know, my, my answer to that is, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to try to use this brass later, you know, for reloading or stuff like that, you know, I would go ahead and have that, have that chamber cleaned out. You know, you can recut it and set it. Um, that's really easy. There's lots of, there's lots of barrels out there that will screw right onto your gun. And the, and so that, that was just my answer. I wouldn't sweat it if he was not going to use the brass later, but if he's going to use the brass later, go ahead and get the, uh, go ahead and have that chamber fixed up. And, you know, any competent gunsmith can, can do that. And plus that's a real common rifle that he has. So he won't have any issues with that at all. Uh, let's see. Oh, another one. Um, I ended up getting that, uh, that, uh, new Swarovski spotting scope mm-hmm. and it has the, uh, it's the STR 80. I think oh, it is. Oh yeah. That's the one I got. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like it because I, I, uh, it's got the, the reticle, you know, I can either turn the reticle on or turn the reticle off. 
And so now since I've received it, I've been able to use it out on the field and stuff like that. And it's really nice because of the fact that I can actually see through the reticle. You can turn it down mm-hmm. low enough. So when I'm spotting shots or calling, you know, calling for questions for students, that thing's worked out really good. And of course, I always have my, my, uh, my Plurf 25 with me. And uh, there was a, a company that found out I had the two items. And if anybody wants to look these guys up, it's called VMUB.com. V Mike Uniform Bravo.com. And what it is is it's a plate. And it, it's a plate that I can mount, you know, whatever equipment on there that I want. Spotting scope, laser ring finder, whatever. And it goes right into the, the arc of rail on the top of my, uh, my two guest tripod. But this thing, go and, go and check them out. They, they've got a couple of products on their website. Um, and you'll be supporting a, a guy who's, who's active duty right now. This is something that he's doing on the side. And so uh, just give them a look. And it's called VMUB.com. Uh, the other thing I wanted to get to is some of, I had to get a new phone and I know that some of the emails that were coming in got lost, because uh-huh. uh, the, the rope comes into my email. So if I haven't tackled your question, um, give me, you know, send it back to me, send it back to, I know it's on your phone or on your computer somewhere. Just send me that stuff back. Next. And I'm done with that. Uh-huh. The next, um, so there's a guy that I've worked with for a long, long time. And if you've been in the industry for more than 15 minutes, you know who he is. Uh, he's the owner of Sniper's Hide. Uh, Mr. Frank Galley is here with us today. Can you want to say hi, Frank? Hey, guys. How you doing today? Man, we're, we're doing really good, man. It, it's, uh, it's kind of one of those things that I know that you've, we've uh, been on podcasts together before, and uh, I wanted to get through my, my housekeeping stuff really quick because uh, a few weeks ago, well, you and I were talking on the phone. You said, hey, man, I'm getting ready to go on this trip. And you started describing this trip to me. And I thought, you know what? Frank doesn't do this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so <laughs> there was no hotel. <laughs> yeah, I said, I, I said, yeah, Frank just doesn't do this kind of stuff. And I said, man, whenever you get back, whenever you get back, please come on the podcast because we want to question you about it. You know, and it's an epic adventure. You know, we had Jordy on. He did, he did the uh, Continental Divide Trail on his motorcycle. And we did a podcast with him. And he told us all about that. And this is, this is, you know, interesting too, because both epic trips and I wanted to, I wanted to get your input and I have, a, I have some questions for you as well. But before we do that, um, I had a question that came in on Rifles Only Accuracy podcast. I know that I've got an answer to it and you've got an answer and Dave's got an answer, but I just kind of wanted to get you more involved with, with our stuff and let you answer this question. Yeah, fire away on that. Uh, let me let me hear their question. Oh, it's funny. I was listening to your intro and stuff, and you were like, you know, oh, my Savage Chamber, and I was just thinking in my head, like, Savage. <laughs> Surprise! The extractor is still working on it. Yeah, and I tell you though, I've seen some. I've seen. Some, I I know that those things are. They're doing. Better. You know, they're they're. they're the, yeah, the new elite ones that, that that a new comp one they have actually works pretty good. The new elite ones, but if you go back at a you know a couple model old one or the stalkers, we find all kinds of issues with them. And I'm telling you, but you know, the thing about it is they're, they're accurate. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. funky and they're not, they're not ergonomic and they're not very comfortable to shoot, but their, their accuracy is not bad. You know what I mean? No, they're not. I mean, it's just, they, they fall apart and you got to redo the, the, the base screws are messed up and you got to kind of open them up. And, but once you, I've seen guys who've taken them apart, put them back together, right? Lock tied them in and they work great, you know, yeah. without having to do a whole lot more than just making sure it's tight when you get it. Yeah, yeah. And it probably should do that with all of our guns anyway, you know what I mean? Because all of them can go yeah. loose. Yeah, for sure. You, you, you yeah. want to double check. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, here I go. Uh, 
I have one regarding shot corrections due to wind and engagement of future targets. Example, I have a five-mile-an-hour gun. I'm shooting at 500 yards. Target is 0.5 mils. So I guess it's a half a mil wide. He says, my wind call is 10 miles an hour. Kestrel confirmed. I hold one mil. I spot my impact and add 0.5 mils for a near center impact, making the correct call approximately 1.5 mils. Reverse the math to collect two possible explanations. Either I had a 15 mile an hour wind value for the duration of the flight or that my rifle more closely resembles a four mile an hour gun. The math is a tad off, I know, and I hope the nature of my question is conveyed. By listening to what the bullet told me downrange, how would you apply that information to future engagements with the same wind? Maybe this just doesn't happen in reality, but if you were to continue shooting, would you assume the downrange wind is of greater value than at your location and estimate it each engagement? Or would you use the actual wind reading at your location and adjust your weaponized mass to be? He said that this is a hypothetical situation. I'll let you run on that one first, Frank. Cool, man. Yeah. Other than the hypothetical part, which could be a whole bunch of anything, I'm going to go, I'm going to say, you know, one, you got to believe the bullet and two, I'm going to go with the Kestrel wind and I'm going to say his gun is not going as fast as he thinks it is. I mean, terrain can have an impact to potentially speed up the wind, but the difference between saying I have a 10 mile an hour at me and you think it's going to be five miles an hour more at just 500 yards away. I'm not going there. I mean, my range, and you've been out to Colorado a bunch, it's pretty consistent that way. When you read it at us, it's going to be that downrange. We have several areas that, that can change it up a little, but usually maybe two miles an hour. So I'm going to say that I would adjust his, his gun, and for future engagements, I would base that. So I'm going to basically say, yeah, I have, I have, a, I have a slower gun, and that's how I'm going to dope the rest of the day doing that. Now, he didn't put in a wind angle or anything like that, so I'm going to assume he's a full value, what he's talking about in his hy- uh, hypothetical. That's the only context I've seen, or not only, I don't want to be absolute, but that would be the biggest kind of change context I would see. Like, on my, you know, you want to look at that wind angle, so if it's not full value, that's going to uh, manipulate it. To, to say, well, I thought it was 10, but my angle made it, you know, but it's not going to increase. It'll usually decrease it unless you read it on the decrease and then you really had a full value at the target. But I'm going to say, yeah, go with the gun um, number, lower that down a little bit because, I mean, 200 feet per second, depending on his muzzle velocity, because he didn't give us a muzzle velocity. If he's running 2650 on a 6.5 Creedmoor and not 2850, well, there's his problem right there. You know, he can look at the BC and say, you know, my 140 is telling me I have a 0.5 BC to give me a five mile an hour gun. But if his muzzle velocity's down, he doesn't have a five mile an hour gun anymore. As well, density altitudes and things like that. If I read a five mile an hour gun at me and then I travel to rifles only, I'm going to have a four mile an hour gun because elevation. So Yeah, we're just pretty sick down here. Yep, yeah. yep. And I appreciate that. I, I would go, you know, I know it's a hypothetical, you know, but I would say that if I saw that, you know, and I'm over there and I'm, I'm watching and, and I appreciate your answer. It's a good one. And it's all correct as usual. Um, but the first thing if I do is I'm looking out there and I'm, I'm behind them with a spotting scope. Uh, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go over and I'm going to put somebody else in the spotting scope and I'm going to watch him pull the trigger mm-hmm. because 
before I got them up to where they were shooting, you know, those, those longer ranges, you know, we're all prone, you know, we do the eval, then we get our guns zeroed. And then I'm over here beating on your head about your trigger press coming straight back to it. And then we change something, anything that we change, you know, we forget the fundamentals a little bit, you know what I mean? And so that's why we got to go back and start applying those again. But the, you know, the, well, everything talking external on that is, is absolutely correct. However, we can't, let go of the fact that this guy might not be coming straight back on the trigger every single time, you know? And so if that's the case, it's going to show up downrange and the rounds falling in the, in the horizontal format. And it's like, I always say that, you know, if we're out and we're shooting at 700 yards and you call that your wind is going to be one mil and then you shoot and you see that it, the impact is at 1.5. Well, the next answer is hold 1.5. Like Frank said in the beginning, believe the bullet. I wonder where that came from. And then, uh, so hold 1.5 and pull the trigger. But if we got pistol or trigger control, then we our, our correction that we make really has no meaning at all. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure that we're correcting for an environmental condition, which is the wind, rather than a fundamental condition, which is the trigger press. And so that's where I would go first. Absolutely. I mean, and we've seen now, like, because the guy's using the airbags and the different bags in the back, we're fixing elevation issues because they're dipping in the bags or they're smooshing down. And so they're shooting high on a lot of these plates and we're able to look at the math and do that. But you may remember, Jacob, we had a class with like 20 dudes all shooting the same gun, same ammo. I mean, granted within the variations of that model gun and, and there are lots of ammo, but at the thousand yards, we had a guy that was holding 1.5 a wind and hitting the target. We had dudes that were holding 3.5 wind holding the, on the same target. And the real math answer was 2.5 to three or Three mils of wind should have been the right answer for that, but we went as high as three five and down as low as one point five because of the shooter variation. And you remember that one? I remember that day specifically. And remember that one guy? He was a left-handed shooter too. He was the only right. I was gonna the, the one point five guy was a lefty, and there was only yep. one lefty in the class, yep. and he was a lefty, and that changed the numbers absolutely. So Jacob going to the shooter is the right answer in the first call hypothetically I was leaving the shooter out of it, but I'm glad you went there. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, that was, I remember that day really specifically. Um, we were, it was a government agency that we had out and everybody was pretty consistent with their wind call, but this one guy was just so far off. And the only difference, the only difference was he was shooting from the opposite shoulder. Yep. Yep. So even a little can't, a little trigger control, a little things like that. If you push it into the gun, there's your wind calls changing. Yeah, they start to add up, man. They add up really, really fast, and the next thing you know, you you don't really have a, a good a good uh, idea of what the hell's going on. So that's why you gotta you know watch the shooter first. It's idea. Yeah, idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, and I got my pin back, so I'm, I'm <laughs> very good. Well, Frank, let's go. Let's move on to um, let's move on to your trip, man. Let's let's move on to your trip. Um, first of all, this, this is a question that I asked that I asked Jordy uh, at the very end of our, of our conversation, but um, how did, did it, uh, did it make you learn some shit about yourself? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, it we, I learned a ton. I mean, this to me was nothing but a huge education. Cause like you said, I, I hadn't, I can't even remember the last time I slept under the stars like that, except going back to the Marine Corps. Right. You know, so it, it's always a question of how am I going to handle it? What's the weather? I mean, it's Alaska. We had, you know, we woke up one morning and, and our, our water was three quarter frozen. Right. Um, you know, snow came down. You got the animals out there and the, and the situations that we dealt with that were on the water. So ice cold water, 
um, that you can't, you don't want to be in, you know, you don't want to fall into that stuff because it's just going right. to take your breath away and, and, and you're going to be in a world of hurt quick. Uh, so yes, I did learn a lot because honestly, it's it, a lot of that is, is about attitude and I loved every minute of my attitude is great. If you look at any of the photographs uh, with myself and Karin, we're laughing the entire time. I mean, we had such a good time out there. Uh, I mean, and I'm going to get into her in a minute because it's, it's really, it, that was the catalyst to go do this. But um, I, I learned a lot as we're as Frank today in 2021, 30 plus years removed from his time in the Marine Corps. And yeah, well, I bet that was a big, a big jump. Yes. And, and, and honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm super happy to where I stepped up because I mean, she was warned, man, Frank does not do this. You might not want to go do that river with him. And, and, you know, why don't you pick something like a lake and, and paddle around a lake and look for something? And she was like, no way, we're going and doing this. And, and you know, she spent the day mentoring me. I spent every minute mentoring me, really, on the water because she, mm-hmm. she's, she's good that way. But, yeah, man, I learned a lot. I learned on the animal patterns up there and where they were moving and how they were moving. You know, what you got to do to keep a bear away. (laughs) You know, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, And then then reading the water. She was really, really good. And and because this, the the river. Back up just a second. Back up Mm -hmm. just a second. I mean, this girl has a pretty impressive resume as it is. Uh, Yeah. Before we even start talking about what she was doing on this trip, tell me about her life. I mean, it's interesting, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I was fascinated by it. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's Karen Hendrickson, and she's an Iditarod musher. Uh, she's competed nine times, and in fact, when we were, she's bringing me to the airport, she put her paperwork in for her 10th. So this year, will or next year, will be her 10th Iditarod. And mm-hmm. she has all her fingers and all her toes, uh, mm-hmm. which is how she puts it. Um, but she also, she has a kind of a connection, if any of you guys out there ever read or see Life Beyond Zero or Below Zero. Mm-hmm. She actually dated one of the guys on there and, and that Mike Manzo and the dog, there's a big white uh, uh, fluffy dog. She has that dog and I kind of was hanging out with Ma uh, when I was at her house. But Karin, yeah. I met five, six years ago at Sheep Creek Lodge through Mark. Mm-hmm. Because Mark outfitted her with Wiggy's gear for her, I did a rod racing. Mm-hmm. The, thing, the thing with Karin is, when she was training after her fourth race and, and they trained in that willow area where the lodge is and what they do is they hook up the dog teams. And I got to do this with her um, the night before we went out. And I'll talk about that in a, in a bit. Uh, she was on her, the dogs pull a four wheeler so she can run the four wheeler and let the dogs pull it 10 miles an hour. And that's how they train them. They want the dogs to consistently be able to, haul that four-wheeler and X gear under this condition at 10 miles an hour. Okay. So she was out, and she goes out all the time. It doesn't matter. You know, day or night, she's out there. She's She's got her dogs hooked up to the four-wheeler. She's got the lights on the four-wheeler and her headlamp on. She's going down the trail on the side of the highway there, which they all do because it's tons of trails off the road. A car crossed in and hit her head on. Oh, wow. Dude, she got whaled and hit the four-wheeler, missed the dogs, broke the cord, luckily, and the dogs got away. 
hit the four-wheeler, threw her in the air 30-plus yards, but she landed on her feet. When she did, she broke her back. And instantly in the hospital, they didn't think she was going to survive it. And honestly, she's in a lot of pain at different times, and you could tell she's beat up pretty good. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, she goes out. So she she fought back, trains back. I mean, she's an absolute motivator. You you you're you look at your life around here and you're going, damn, I'm lazy, you know? Because like the morning we came home, it was five a.m. It was raining in Willow, and she was out hooking the dogs up, and and she's like, hey man, you're awake? Yeah, I'm like, she's like, I'm going out with the dogs. I'll see you for breakfast. I'm like, all right. We just got off a six day trip. And you're running dogs at five in the morning in the rain. <laughs> you're better than I am, you know? And, and, and she did that twice a day, you know, twice yeah. that morning. But so she, through like uh, Mike, who she was with, Mike's known on Life Below Zero as the moose hunter guy. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, Karen shoots moose, man. She's been out there doing this stuff. And she just got one in April with her Glock. She, she carries a Glock 10 millimeter with uh, the dangerous game uh, solid and mm-hmm. you'll block trail all the time. It, you know, stuff will come after the dog or because the trails are real tight. If you right. have a moose on the trail, you come around the corner, the moose ain't going to leave. He'll probably charge you before he decides to back off that trail. Right. And so just in April, you know, she, she had had to kill a moose, but she wanted a legal one, you know, not a defensive one. She wanted an offensive one. The right. filler freezer. Originally, we were going to go to the Sheen Jack River, and the Sheen Jack's way farther north, up into the Yukon, closer to the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. But the but the pilot didn't want to bring us <clears throat> with the potential we were going to get a moose, and hmm. he didn't he didn't want because because what happens is hunters say you know they say hey how much weight you holding. And the hunter will say, I'm holding this much weight. And then when they show up with the moose, the moose weighs, you know, 200 pounds more than they figure, 400 pounds more than they figure. And right. throwing the balance of these planes off, you know, you're a small plane pilot. Yeah. Um, uh, we were we were delayed getting out there because of weather in one of the passes. Like the planes we were using couldn't go over like 8,000 feet, I think it is. Yeah. And um you can't get through the path. Right. So, so we were delayed a day, but she's, um, I mean, she's not, she knows how to shoot. She knows how to process game. Um, she's out there and living it. Cause a thousand miles by jitter rods. I mean, they have checkpoints, but they don't always are capable of stopping at checkpoints. You're stopping in the middle, you know, you, you're on your own in between those checkpoints. And right. so when you, you're running a thousand miles from Anchorage to Nome. Anything can happen on that trail. She last year, she was a race official and mm-hmm. Rome where we stayed the cabin that we, the first night. And she had a call in a black Hawk with PJs mm-hmm. because a competitor coming around a corner, the dogs whipped the sled woman hit a tree or something with her head, got a concussion. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's life or death out there. And so the woman had internal bleeding in her head, had some going on. She wasn't able to verbalize correctly when she reached the checkpoint. 
And they're like, no, you can't go any further. You got a scratch right here. Oh, by the way, I got to get a Blackhawk in. And that right. was Karin's job to do all that, right. um, to, to, to take that and, and, and get that. So, I mean, these people are, I don't want to say jack of all trade, but definitely a little bit above and beyond your average outdoorsman type person, mainly because they're working in such extreme colds. I mean, they, they bury thermometers at minus 60 and they're still out there. Right. So yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, that's a tough way, man. That's a, that's a tough environment up there. And, and like you say, she's, she's done the Iditarod and also done, you know, been a, an official and, and knowing, you know, people can get hurt out there can get hit by a car on a dog sled. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it it's, it's just nuts. And I mean, like I said, she's tough as nails um, yeah. when, when it comes to that kind of stuff and, and knows it. But so I had seen her in Sheep Creek Lodge over the summer. She always comes uh, when we first met, she kind of yelled at me and, and, and I was like, somebody was saying something like, she's like, oh, I work out in minus 60. And I'm like, fuck that. You're nuts. And she's like, who the hell are you to tell me I'm crazy? And I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> and so then for like two years, I was hiding from her and I'm like, oh my God, this woman's going to, you know, hit me on top of the head and break both my legs or something. Not that she's big. Um, but you know, so then we struck up a friendship after that. And, and so she's telling me, Hey, I want to go, you know, I want to go out for two weeks and float from the sheen jack, you know, to here and nobody will come with me because it's the amount of time. I said, well, I can't do two weeks, but I'll do this float with you. It'd be a great experience for me. And, and she's like, well, I want to potentially put a moose in my freezer. I said, well, I don't have to shoot anything. I'm not worried about shooting a moose. I mean, I see them on the range all the time up there. They're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're huge, man. And I'm like, ah, yeah. I'm not sweating shooting something that big. It's as big as a pickup truck. Yeah, it is. But, but if we have that opportunity or we see one and you're not sure of yourself, this, she's never shot one much past 40, 50 yards. Right. I said, if, if we see one, uh, you know, that's beyond that and, and, and you want to know about your dope or we, we want to need the shot, I'll take the shot for you because I'll get a license. We have tags. And yeah. I did get get my license, and I got one with a fishing component just in case we threw a line in the water. Right. Um, uh, so it was two hundred dollars for a combined out of state non resident license, and, and it really isn't bad. No, not at all. No, and, not and, at all. and it was. It, that's the thing is, I didn't want to like have somebody come around a corner and me have a fishing pole in my hand and not have a fishing component of it if right. we did that. So I made sure I had both of them, and, and so. She was like, you know, at first she's, yeah, sure, Frank, you're going to go. Because everybody's like laughing at the table because they know me. Especially, you know, Mark's like, dude, he don't do any of that shit. You know, my idea of roughing it is these $120 hotel rooms. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and so, but I wanted to push myself. I wanted to see, you know, what Alaska had to offer and, you know, how I performed out under those conditions. And to me, the animal side of it was icing on the cake. Should we be in that position? Yeah. Well, let's get it. You, there, your triple six days. Yes, it, six days is where we ended up with the the, the delay that we had in the first night. Um, so okay. we, we we had to we had to delay that one night. All right. And so I know uh, everybody's going to want to know what what were the guns that y'all had. Oh, we just had a Browning three fifty eight lever action. Mm-hmm. 
and that was hers. And, and, you know, this was one of the things is that when she, she, she has the handguns and, and, you know, like I said, she runs a 10 mil, but she had asked, what do I need from people local to her on a rifle? And she can moose hunt in her backyard. Matter of fact, when we got back, she was doing some calls back there, trying to bring one into her backyard. They gave her these rifles. These are an 1800s assault rifle. It's an AR-15 from the 1800s. Yeah. And I'm looking at what she has, what's going on. I'm familiarizing myself with this hunting caliber. And the 358 drop from like a 200-yard zero to 300 is, is big. I mean, it's over 12 inches. And it's like, ah, that's kind of a, you know, it's only going 2,400 feet per second. Yeah how are you supposed to do anything with it beyond your 200 yard zero? Yeah. But what was yeah. the bullet weight, Frank? Uh, uh, 200. Yeah. Okay. So we got, we got some, we got some weight to it. Yeah. It's got a thud to it. Um, yeah. it's, it's a little round nose, soft point hunting, mm-hmm. 200 grain, uh, 358. The muzzle velocity on it was 2450. And we had it zeroed up. Uh, they did that. They zeroed it up at 200 yards. So like I said, looking at that as a zero point, the drop was between 12 and 14 inches. Uh, you know, so I'm trying to figure out, you know, because the tree lines and a lot of the areas we were at were between 450 and 350. I ranged them because uh, mm-hmm. each area we went to, we essentially set up range cards. Right. And um, that was like the first thing we did because one, we had to have range cards for standoff from the tree line. Our food had to be in a certain spot. Our tent was going to be in another spot. We didn't want to be closer to the trees than 100 yards or so uh, for that standoff, which it will come into play when we talk my bear story. Mm-hmm. So as soon as, I mean, everywhere I'm going, I'm going to just say from like this hunting side and from my scouting side, because I look at this as a scouting trip, right. I lived with my binoculars. Mm-hmm. Um Granted, the handgun never left us. We both were running the Glock 10 millimeters. That never left our side, but the binoculars never left my side. And I used that to establish a lot of what we were doing. I used it to scan the banks because I'm looking for activity of animal movement. If you look at the photographs of um, my trip out there, which some are on Sniper's Hide, some are on Facebook, the traffic, the areas we stopped were insane with animal traffic. And that's not to say we didn't pass miles of shoreline with none. Right. And so I'm looking for these alleys the animals are using because there's defined alleys and you can see them. It's like, hey, Carl, we got an alley over here. Here's a, here's a spot of the bank they're using right here. There's three alleys on the other side. This looks like a good spot where we'd come around the corner and we'd have a similar, you know, water line in, in the banks and sandy and gravel, but then you got no alleys and no movement or signs of movement. So it's right. like, let's skip this area so we don't have to go walking through the woods because we're hoping those animals came and transited past us. And that's exactly what happened every single day is that we were picking really great locations and the amount of animal traffic we was just through the roof. I mean, without a whole lot of extra effort. Damn, sounds like it was awesome. <laughs> awesome. It, 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 well, the first night, um, put it this way. So I'll, I'll kind of go, 
you through. So you, uh, guys were asking about um, our boat. And so we borrowed the boat and, and we were under boat in a way we had a, um, we had a sore inflatable canoe and we, we originally thought we were going to have like a pro pioneer with like a 1500 uh, pound weight rating, but it really only had the thousand pound weight rating. And so with all our kit with us, we were only looking at about four or 500 pounds of spare room. Right. And there's no animal out there unless we found a caribou, a smaller one that was going to fit that requirement because you can't waste it. You, and you, I can't shoot a moose, take 500 pounds worth and leave the rest. No, nah, you got to take it all. Yeah. You got to take, right. You got to take everything. And, and yeah. so we, we knew that going into this, but because of the last minute nature of it, because, um, you know, the, the cost of the flight and, and things like that to, to get out there, we just said, listen, you know, we, we get it. Maybe we'll come across the caribou. We, we did have a tag in one area. The first area we were in, we needed to have uh, X amount of inches and four tines on yeah. the antlers. The second area we had was any, any. So even if we came across a little spike, we might have been able to get lucky on something as long as it had, you know, an inch, inch and a half of something popping through, we were good. So, um, but that, that didn't happen. We only saw big shit. I mean, that was the unfortunate part of it. Is, um, we, uh, like I said, we, we started out floating or flying into Rhone. And what she did is she mirrored her Iditarod trail from Rhone to Nikolai. And that was 70 plus miles of paddling we had on the river. Uh-huh. Uh, so we covered 70 miles in the day, her and I. and. Regal dropped us into the airstrip at Rhone. We spent the first night there in that, uh, that checkpoint slash emergency cabin they have just to sort ourselves out. And even around us was just bison everywhere. There were signs of bear and we found a cave cut into um, the side of the riverbank. And, and it, it showed signs of bear traffic. Um, just, she walked me down about maybe two, three miles of the Iditarod trail before you come into the, the, the camp um, where you transition from the river to the woods because they run the rivers a lot. Uh, so they follow the river and then they'll pop up out of the river bank into the woods for X amount of time. And then they'll stop at this cabin as a checkpoint. And on that trail, tons of wolf tracks, wolf crap, um, and it's huge, man. I mean, remember Duncan, dude, you had the yeah. giant, they crap yeah. bigger than him. <laughs> that was a big dog, man. That was a 200 pounder. Yeah. I mean, their, their, their crap is like four Duncans, you know? Yeah. And some of them have uh, like rabbit fur in it or something. And there was fur and, and so all in their crap and you could see what they're eating. And then right across from us on the mountain were uh, sheep and goats. Tons of them. We probably saw a minimum 25, 30 goats up there. But they weren't on the, they weren't, they were not, and uh, y'all weren't hunting them. No, not at all. We had no means yeah. to get up to them at all. And the gun okay. was way never going to make it to try to get one of them guys. Yeah. Uh, they, they, but you could see them just scattered all along that mountainside on the opposite bank of the river. Right. Uh, so great goat hunting area. If you were ever able to get a bison tag, 
because uh, I understand bison tags are pretty hard in Alaska. Mm-hmm. You you want to be in that Roan area because every morning we woke up with bison in our camp uh, within a, within a hundred yards. So uh, yeah, I mean you could basically roll out of bed, unzip your zipper on your tent, and shoot them from right there. They were, you know, as thick as thieves, um, that kind of deal. But we scouted our areas on our downtime. I mean, we never sat still. But then uh, launched the boat from there uh, down towards Nikolai. Uh, first day, we went about 20, 23 miles just past a mountain they call Egypt because it looks like a pyramid. Yeah. And that's where we found uh, the first area of activity. We, we pulled over. We set our camp up. And I was scouting the bank. And I went down uh, north of us. Uh, she was uh, getting food and stuff ready. And so as I moved around north, I wasn't even 100, 150 yards from our cooking site. And it was had a lot more trees there. I come around the corner and across the river from me, I had a cow moose right there. Wow. And, and so, yeah, first, first evening in, I got a cow. And I'm like, okay, well, there's a cow right there. She's good. So I came back to a car and hey, I saw a cow, uh, you know, tracks were mixed between bison and moose and then we had wolf tracks everywhere we saw bison we saw wolf signs yeah. Yeah. um because the bisons did have a lot of uh of their calves running around so there's definitely babies and things like that who knows one gets hurt i'm sure the wolves take advantage of it yeah it, for sure yeah because they're big i mean she one we had one print and i have a photo i haven't put it up yet her hand is is almost as um the the wolf is almost the size of her hand. Yeah, and and you know, you know, first evening was pretty straightforward. Uh, about thirty five degrees overnight, clear skies, real nice. So easy, easy day the first night. Yeah, we get up, uh, cruise over, and when I had scouted north, I went north. And there was this V in the trees and it was a nice area of like, we could sit in the V and it gave us about 180 degrees of really good views. Uh, We had, we had a lane behind us that was narrow, but if something came in the lane behind us and I know the bison were taking that lane, we could see that as well. But overall we had about a little over 180 degrees and she wanted to practice calling. So what she was doing initially was a bull call. She was looking for somebody who wanted to get in a fight. Right. And um, we weren't using a call. She used her, her mouth. Um, she didn't She didn't have a tool with her. Uh, she was just doing it. And God, I want to say within half hour, 45 minutes, she got a response. Mm-hmm. And so he starts grunting. She's grunting back and they're having a conversation. Right. So I'm like, I'm like, holy shit, man. This, I'm like, in my head, and, and the bitch was like, all my movie references were lost on her because she doesn't watch TV. Go figure, you know, somebody who's out doing this stuff doesn't have a TV. Right. Um, but, like, there was a scene in Bad Teacher with Cameron Diaz where she was explaining to another teacher how to pick up guys in a bar. Mm-hmm. And and she goes, do this, do this, and then do that. And she, the woman does it and picks the guy up in two seconds, and this observer in the movie goes, wow, that worked. And really fast, too. <laughs> and, and, and And that's how I felt with her, I'm like, holy shit, she's talking to a moose. And, and I, I'm, I'm sure you had a feeling like shit just got real. Yes. Oh, totally. So um, I popped up my binos and he came right, he broke the trees right at, uh, you know, 12 o'clock from us. 
and I kind of moved her back from me about 25 yards to draw him out a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and she was banging. Oh, what we were doing was a combo. We'd do a, a bull call, and then we just with sticks, we'd, we'd, we did like an antler rattler. You know, we were, we were right. raking the trees, uh, banging on the logs, and, and that seemed to work really well, and it drew him out of the, um, out of the trees like, hey, man, I'm ready to fight. Right. I, w- I look at him and his paddles are friggin' huge. And I'm like, shit, man, that thing's big. And so he comes out, he comes out. I threw my Zeiss up. I lasered him about 225. Um, and he's stepping forward. So 225 is where I had him with the gun zeroed at 200. Right. I'm like, yeah, okay. So she, I bring her forward to take a look at it. And she, and, and you can see the look on it. She's like, we got to let it go. I'm like, yeah. oh man. I mean, it's right there. Yeah. She's like, nah, let it go. And um, I, she, I didn't have my, my big camera with me. And she was like, oh, you want to go get your camera? I said, well, I'll give it a try. But the camera was kind of between me and him. And as soon as I broke the trees, he turned around and walked away. Yeah. Um, but I was able to get a picture of his prints. And you could see his dual claws in the back, just how friggin' big his prints were. Um, you know, he was a monster. Wow. Yeah, well, one of the things that you, I mean, one of the things with Nero were out there and, and you're with those big animals, you know, it's it's kind of crazy. You know, I, I did uh, I did red stag and tar in New Zealand, and um, you know, they're they're not they are not as big as a bull moose, but they're big. And what's amazing is how much ground they can cover. You know what yeah. I mean? It looks like they're just you know, doesn't even hardly look like they're moving. But then you start to look at how much ground they're covering just because their legs are so long. I, I can imagine what it looked like if you if you had a big bull come out and just too big to shoot because you'd have to leave all your gear behind just to float them down the river. Yeah, and honestly, we weren't even in the trickiest part of the river yet. We were in a pretty mellow part. I mean, the, the velocity, the, you know, the, the speed of the water was about six to eight miles an hour where we were. So it's, it's moving pretty good, but we were in a deep, thick area, and it's yeah. glacier water. So, I mean, the whole trip, all we did was drop our, our canteen uh, into it and drank straight out of it. Um, right. We didn't we didn't prep the water at all. We just drank it. And, um, you know, that was pretty good. But, yeah, I mean, just the, the gear that we took, which I only went with one dry bag in my dry bag backpack. That's mm-hmm. all I, I carried. But we still had a stove. We had a repair kit for the, uh, you know, a kit to take care of the boat. Right. Um, her clothing and, and stuff. The, the tent was small, but it it adds up with our food. We had six days worth of food. Yeah. Uh, you know, so two coolers for that, and and so then you know meat bags, uh, flotation devices, and, and it, it adds up. So I, I figured we had about four or five hundred pounds worth of gear just between, uh, you know. All of us, there. her and I, about three hundred pounds, and probably another three hundred pounds in gear. Yeah. What kind of what kind of clothes did you take, Frank? Um, I was wearing ninety nine percent merino. I have uh, a company I use is Varumi, and they're out of Gosa Springs in Cal- uh, Colorado. It's V O O R M I. And then I had my triple lot stuff, so I was wearing a triple lot soft shell pants. I had Varumi a uh, merino wool. Uh, long johns underneath it, the mid ones, not the super heavies. And then um, the sweaters, I had like a triple lot sweater. I did have, because we had wind and it got windy. So I had one that was a nylon shell, like Adirondack. 
Mm-hmm. I, I wore underneath just to knock some of the, um, the, the, the wind down. But other than the last two days were the only days I had to put an actual jacket on. Um, mm-hmm. In the morning, I threw, I had a Bastion jacket from Triple Alt, which was a puffy down style. I only wore that the last two days. Mostly, I was wearing just a, a, a roomy hoodie with about two layers. I had their sweatshirt style and then their long johns underneath. And then uh, their their hoodie was all I really wore most of the time and super comfortable. Now, she didn't wear long johns most of the time. I did. Um, I just felt like I, I like it hot. I felt yeah. more comfortable being a little warmer um, yeah. than, than being a little colder. And the only time it was an issue was with the wind, but uh, definitely more natural with the wool. I didn't do a lot of tech fabric other than my soft shell pants to keep the water because I splashed on myself quite a bit. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I guess you're, you're sending some energy too, whenever you're paddling down the river as well. You honestly, this and, and she had two books that she researched this area of the river, and one of them was like you know Yukon rivers and their tributaries. It was paddling them, gave like dire warnings for people like me. Like they're telling, they're saying you know without mentioning Frank by name, they're like Frank, you don't want to be on this river because you suck. And, <laughs> and 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 she she told me she goes well, I kept that part to myself. And reading the water it's tricky because you can go down the wrong branch really easy and you'll have three choices and all three look pretty similar when you're coming on it and you're laying out. And so she's watching the, you know, where's the eddies, where's the current, what's going on. And, and she's looking at all this stuff. And the nice thing that she did with me was she wasn't just like Frank paddle on the left, Frank paddle on the right. Okay. Now give me some gas. She was like, what are we looking at and why are we making these decisions? So by the third day, I'm anticipating what she's going to tell me. I'm mm-hmm. speeding. I'm speeding up when we had obstacles uh, on our own. We did hit one section between um, third day and between third and fourth day, where it choked and tightened down. It was almost where all the flood, because it flooded quite a bit prior prior to us showing up. You could see signs of it, and the trees are everywhere, knocked down. I mean, there's rock jams all over. And we had come around a corner that choked it down into maybe a canoe and a half wide, maybe two canoes wide. And we definitely banged into some some stuff right there, but just the way the water was. But it wouldn't take much if if you screwed the water pattern up to get pulled underneath the log jam because the water does go underneath them. and, and, And the tangles are just so nasty. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you could flip really easy in, in a few sections or get grounded and screwed up in a bad branch. I mean, we did have to line the boat at least four or five times. We got out and we lined it through some obstacles. Yeah. It just it just wasn't worth trying to make the maneuver. Right. Uh, it's just too tight. I mean, there was some, you know, 90 degree turns. And yeah. if you just didn't have enough room for that, or you had enough problems on both sides of where the 90 was and it had reduced down in size where you weren't really good on, on, on one side and it was definitely going to suck you under on the other. So it's like, Hey, let's just take this little shortcut here, but we'll line it, get out of the boat and walk it through, uh, which we did do on more than one occasion. Yeah. 
yeah, the discretion is a better part of valor on that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then uh, I'll get into the third day when um, we landed with uh, with the Bears because that was fucking fast. <laughs> hey, before we do that, man, mm-hmm. uh, I know, I know. What what were y'all eating out there? What food did y'all take? And more importantly, in your case, because I know you, did you have coffee? Yeah, we had coffee. I had yeah. I had Starbucks. Um, I had a Jet Boil, and yeah. um, we she brought. Uh, she brought a uh, chocolate milk. Yeah, and I brought those little uh, Vibra pack uh, of Starbucks. They're those little single ones. They come yeah. in a flat pack. So I had coffee. Okay. And uh, I had mocha a couple times too. Throw my coffee with hot chocolate. Yeah. Uh, like I said, water was easy. And the jet foils are awesome, man. Yeah. I, I, honestly, it was my favorite tool out there because you just scoop the water out of the thing, boil it up in the morning, and and the boil made a pot big enough for both of us to have a cup each. Um, right. You know, then I could make another while we were waiting. But yeah. we ate. She pre-made some stuff. Uh, we had eggs with us. We had uh, hash browns uh, that were dehydrated hash browns. Uh, mm-hmm. I kept boiled some water. Twelve minutes in that, and then in the pan. Um, we didn't have meat until we got some from uh, the hunters. But uh, we had bacon. Mm-hmm. We did. So yeah. we had eggs, bacon, and uh, hash browns that we we made up. I brought some REI stuff uh, from from here, but we didn't use any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, although I, I I ate a a protein bar just because it was chocolate chips, and I wanted the chocolate. Yeah. Uh, what else did we have? Um, well, she had tortillas. We had burritos a lot. We threw a lot of stuff into a burrito, and and then. Like, if we made something up, we would wrap it in a burrito and we would eat it cold later. Yeah. Uh, so we had hot food and that worked out pretty well. Um, you know, we had two small six-pack style coolers. One went under my seat and one went under her seat. So we carried about that much food. And then we had one bag that was like, you know, just pogey bait. It was, you know, some, some sweets and, and candies and different things that we nibbled on throughout the trip. That sounds good. Yeah, I had to ask you about the coffee because uh, I know that you don't you don't make it very far if you don't have coffee. No, no, and it's funny too because she gets super talky when she has coffee. Um, <laughs> I said that when we got back, she has uh, one of her handlers that lives there at her house, and and I and and she was saying, "Oh, Frank talks a lot," and I said, "Oh, Ben, let me tell you something, man. She was chatty as hell." He goes, "You <laughs> gave her coffee, didn't you?" And I said, <laughs> "I did right I, away." Yeah, I said, "I sure did." Um, well, tell me about the bear. Yeah, so we uh, so we're sca- we're coming around the corner. Third day, we had gone. This was about the fifty mile mark of the trip. Yeah, and I find a spot with a ton of traffic. I'm like, oh, look at this traffic. Looks good. So we pull in. I mean, we 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 had finessed our our process a bit because everything's about process where we're going to set up the, the, you know, the kitchen, what we're going to do with the boat, how we're going to anchor it and tie it, and we're, how far we're going to move our gear and kind of stuff. So the first day, you know, we had walked stuff around and moved things. The second day, it's like, well, let's just set up the kitchen by the water over here. Then we only have to take the, the sleeping bags in our tent because no food. I mean, I had for my water, I had a can of um, lemonade. Mm-hmm. 
and, you know, powdered lemonade. And I was putting powdered lemonade in my water every day. We didn't even bring our toothbrush or the powdered lemonade drink to the tent. Yeah. You know, no uh, tents were sterile. We, it was yeah. just us in there. Yeah. And so we said, you know, by the third day, we had this down on, on packing and unpacking the boat and what we were going to do. So we had pulled up. I had scouted the area and I didn't get super close to the tree line, but where we were, I saw the moose tracks. I saw the, the, the bison tracks, a bunch of wolf tracks and, and not really any bear activity where, where I looked. Mm-hmm. So then there was this little rise and it was flat and sandy. And this was like a beach, really powder fine beach. Most of the places we stopped was 90% gravel, 10% mm-hmm. sand. Mm-hmm. This was 90% sand, 10% gravel. Okay. So there was this area that had like two small bushes. And I said, well, I'm going to put the tent right between them. Give us a little bit of protection, some cover. And if something comes by, it's just a rock between the bushes. Yeah. So we're good. And rifle's still in the dry bag, but we're, we're we got our Glocks on us. We go over and the first thing we're going to do, because it was a little later in the day, it was probably 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. Yeah. We set, we set up the tent. And she was, she was, uh, Karen has a, a small, tiny little, only sits about six inches off the ground, top that she puts together. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, you know, she's putting the cot together and, and I'm there kind of, you know, just moving some stuff around. I'm, I'm working with a dry bag and I'm stuffing things in and I threw my sleeping bag in there and putting things away. And I get up and, and she turns around and she's putting the, the poles together for her cot. And she goes, uh, Frank, turn around. No, my Siri's talking to me. She's like, turn around. I'm like, as soon as I turn around, coming right out of a hole in the tree line, we got two grizzlies galloping at us. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, they're in full fucking sprint. And the only kind of saving grace is right outside their hole, there was a, um, a, a like a wash that was a hole. So it was probably about 10 feet deep and pretty big, which when we went over there after, uh, I'll explain what that looked like, but they come bursting out of the tree line. They're not saying a thing. So you can't hear them. They're on sand. Mm -hmm. They cross about 40 yards, like in three to five seconds, they're already Mm -hmm. fucking making pace. Mm -hmm. Like you said, big ass animals move fast. Yeah. So I pull the Glock, she pulls her Glock, and immediately she starts yelling at him, and it was comical. She's yelling, you MFers, get the fuck out of here. This is my beach, and I'm cracking up at the shit she's saying. And they're still coming, but, like, then she grabs her stuff sack for her um, her cot, and she puts it on the pole, and she's waving it above her head, and she's going, I'm bigger than you, and she's waving this bright blue stuff sack. That kind of confused them a little bit, and they stopped. Yeah. So they're about 60, 80 yards, about 80 yards from us at that point. Mm-hmm. And they, and they stopped charging us and mom's looking at something. She's got a teenager. It's not a, it's not quite a yearling. It's not like last year's. It's probably a two year old yeah. um, with her. So good size, um, but not huge, not as big as her. Yeah. So she turns to it and you can see them. They're having their kind of like, you know, nonverbal conversation. And she turns to him and says, you know, screw it. We're bigger than they are. And now they start moving at us again. 
So I'm just, I'm not saying anything. She steps forward. I step forward with her and she knows I'm going to shoot them. And she's yeah. like, dude, don't shoot them. They're just curious. I'm like, mm-hmm. curious? Well, I'm curious what I'm going to taste like. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean yeah. curious? And they're running at us. And um, so I'm like, all right, I won't shoot them. So they're coming, they're coming. They get about 60 yards. And I, and I move off right between them. They're only about maybe 10 feet between the two of them. They're shoulder to shoulder. The bears are. They're yeah. pretty close together. I popped around like right between them. Mm-hmm. And, and the dirt was um, like nice powder sand. And there was right. a little bit of wind blowing. So it threw a plume of dirt about three, four feet in the air. Uh-huh. And and mom went, like turned and went, what was that? And she stood up. She's looking around like, where did that come from? So she's looking around standing tall now. And she was big, man. She was probably 12 feet or so standing up. Yeah. And then she dropped back down, turned to him, and, and they turned around and started walking towards a different section to go into another hole. And yeah. so they, they're, they're leaving. Well, right as they're turning to leave, a third one comes out of the first hole. Yeah. So now we got a third one that's running. He comes running towards us, running towards us. He gets about halfway. He stops and realizes they're not out here. The other two had already are going back into the woods. And so he, you know, us, them, us, them, and then he decides to run back in the woods. So now I'm like, shit, I got three bears. They're 125 yards in the woods, and I don't know where the heck they're at. Right. She's, she's confident now. She's like, ah, they're gone. We scared them off. They're not coming back. I'm like, now? Are they going to come back later? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we made a fire um, with the driftwood uh, by the cooking area. We, we cooked up dinner and, and had that. And in our mind, we figure if they are going to come out, they're going to come to the food. And we'll hear them them bang the pots and pans if they do anything. But we went over to their hole, and we went to that area. There was 100 tracks if there was two. That must have been where they were camping out and accessing the river. Right. But there was tracks everywhere. And, I mean, just the claws. Like, when you see her tracks from running, and Mm -hmm. I posted these, the scrapes from her claws in that sand. I mean, you can see how one swipe will take you out. Oh yeah, yeah. I thought they always say, you know, the, the hikers and stuff like that is whenever in bear country, you know, to have bear spray with you and you know to have a bell on your on your pack, you know, and everything else. And then if you if you run across, you know, you're in bear country and you run across like uh, you, you scat and you don't know what it is that you know it's um if it you know has berries and leaves in it and stuff like that, it's a black bear. But if it's a grizzly bear. Uh, it has bells and smells like bear spray. Yes, yeah, yeah. They lick the bear spray for flavor, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that's the thing is where we are. They don't really hunt the bears, right? Because you can get the bears much closer without the expense. You can drive right. to a spot and get bears. And so these ones were more curious, and you know, we're talking loud as it was. And they don't care, like, because, yeah, there's, everybody says, you know, talk and bears are more scared of you because they know we hunt them right. in, in, in certain areas. But in this area, there's not a lot of human traffic, and they're not really hunted, so uh, that's why their curiosity was peaked. Uh, you know, so it, it is what it is there, which also leads into the next night um, when, when we went down the, the river. Uh, 
I stayed up all night. I was like, you know, the hell with this. And, and, and still, the funny thing is, every night we still called um, Moose. And, and, and what we were hoping is we wake up in the morning and there's one hanging around. Sure. Well, every morning we found fresh tracks right where we were mm-hmm. as they passed by us. And a couple times I heard them on the rock. Uh, you can hear them stomp on the gravel. Yeah. And I knew, you know, one just came in at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I had one come in at one forty-five, you know, so I'm paying attention to what time I'm hearing this and, you know, uh, where, where they are. Then we're going over and looking and we're finding the track. So her calling was super successful. It was just the timing of when they showed up. Um, you'd also hear them drop into the water. Uh, like, especially I heard the bison. When the bison crossed the water, I can hear them thump into the water at night. And then we'd wake up the next day and we'd be surrounded by them. And they weren't there the night before when we went to bed, you know, that kind of thing. So you're hearing the activity. Uh, you just can't see them. I mean, we did have a full moon uh, most nights and, and, and great stars, but we did have an overcast. And, and then I'll get into the fourth night with our other encounter because that was a rainy night. So um, on our fourth night, we go over and we go down, we pass that bear encounter. So I'm checking the rivers and, and, the, and the thing. So I had an area with a lot more standoff, a lot more, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, branches around us of water, but a lot, a lot of traffic. And I look, and I'm looking and looking. I'm like, no bear tracks, a ton of wolf with wolf pups as well. We had an area, had to be about five or six wolf pups with them. Um, which was cool. We were hoping we would catch some wolf, but we, we talked way too much um, for wolves to be around. And shut up, Siri. Siri keeps hearing me. Let me get her off my wrist. Um, so I set up the tent. We do our thing. We have a lot more standoff in this area. And we do our typical. We set everything up. And, and we have a, a good deal going on. Well, we we ran into some hunters right when we were packing up that morning we ran into some hunters going by and it was five guys with two big ibs style boats uh and we said hi to them well then we ended up catching up to them on the river we were moving quicker than they were yeah and you know they had one moose with them and and so they said hey do you guys want a little bit of moose meat and we're like hell yeah we'll take some moose meat <laughs> so it turns out and, and he denied it because one of the guys outed him. But he's like, no, 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 I'm just a salesman. But it was a, it was a, a hunting party with Steve Hornaday. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so it was, we were talking to him. We pulled over. They gave us um, two, two cuts of meat. And, um, you know, we're talking to him. And one of the, one of the guys, like, they're, they're, he's not a guide. He's from Pennsylvania, but lives up there. And he's been coming up there for like 12 years. And he's a whitewater rapid uh, uh, rafter. He was like their head guide. He was, he was navigating them. Yeah. So he, he pulled us over and he goes, oh, that's, you know, he owns Hornaday. But he had told us he was from Wisconsin. And I'm yeah. like, that threw me off. I'm like, well, why is he from Nebraska? Yeah. But I mean, he had been out for 10 days. They were, they've been out since the 7th. They were dirty. He was covered in, you know, 10 layers of clothes and hat down. Cause it was chilly that morning. Yeah. Um, so I didn't recognize, but I don't think I ever met Steve Hornaday. 
So it, it, it didn't surprise me. And, and like I said, the Wisconsin thing threw me off because he just said he was a sales rep from Wisconsin. And I yeah. went, oh, okay, he might be. But uh, yeah, so we cooked up their meat. We had um, we had potatoes with us. We had the um, uh, the moose meat, a little bit of onion with us, and, and we we cooked that up. So in my mind, I'm figuring, well, if a bear does come through, he's going to go for the moose meat. He isn't going to waste his time with me. Right. So we set our tent up in an area. We got it all good. The next morning, I get up, take a piss, and right there is freaking tracks, a bear track. I'm like, uh, Karin, these weren't here last night. And he cut right through past us and about three feet from the back of our tent. Now you could tell by the tracks, he never paid us no mind. Right. That, that night it had hailed first and then rained for about an hour or so. And uh-huh. the mountains behind us in Rome were now completely covered in snow. Um, but we didn't have any snow where we were. We just had that hail and rain the night before, but it had cleared up pretty good. But also when we, when I followed the bear track, there was um, like fish trapped in one of the branches. So I'm thinking he beelined for that because he went right into that branch and he went and grabbed himself some fish and that's why he ignored us. Yeah. You know, but he was good size, um, good size print and he just walked back. Now today, Karin just sent me a, um, uh, a news article from Alaska uh, one of the uh, mushers, because mushers get a lot of attention up there. They get news articles. They get talked about a lot. Yeah. A, a musher was just out uh, this week doing the same thing we did, and he had to shoot a bear that was outside his tent that wouldn't leave and was staring him down and was kind of deciding what, you know, the person in the tent, what is that I'm looking at. But right. he, he had said this, this bear had had already chewed up his shoes, got into his kitchen, and, and had come back every night. And that morning, it was outside his tent, and he ended up having to shoot it. So they did a news article on uh, another musher actually killing a bear this weekend that kept harassing his camp. So, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you, you know, this is why we got a second amendment, because there's freaking shit out there that'll bite you and eat you, and, you know, you ain't coming home. Yeah, and we also got the Second Amendment because, you know, like Clint Smith said, some people just need to be shot. Well, absolutely. Well, because different kind of jungle. You know what I mean? I mean, you you look at the stuff in L.A. My daughter lives in L.A. I've been to the restaurants on Melrose Place. There's a video of people getting robbed at gunpoint at an outdoor cafe on Melrose Place last week. Yeah. You know, there's bears in the friggin' concrete jungle too they just yeah you know dress different yeah and um so but yeah i mean so it's really crazy just you know picking these areas the amount of animal traffic that you're seeing i mean beavers on every bank the beavers are doing maintenance alongside the river banks you can see where they're chewing up just on the edge and preventing the erosion because the trees pull the banks over when the water sure. starts to erode it. And you can see that clear. So when the beavers take the banks and take the trees out, it doesn't wreck the river banks as much. So you can see them guys doing conservation 
in their own area, you know? Yeah. These animals aren't stupid. They know. No, everything. no. They, well, they've been living there a long time, man. They, you know, they, if they were stupid, they'd been dead a long, long ago. For sure. And then the rest of the trip, like I said, when, after we met um, the Steve Hornaday crew, that's when we hit the really tricky area of the uh, of the water where it choked down really hard. Like I said, we banged against one set of logs once in that spot, but it, it was the right set of logs that we were able to get beyond it. And it wasn't a tangle that sucked us under, but we did line twice right after that um, just right. because it was that bad. And then we had a sort of uneventful next night, finished up a lot of our food and we had moved into native territory land. Um, I don't remember the tribe because the tribes matter. So I don't want to like say something wrong and mention the type of native they are, but it, it's not Eskimo. It's there's, it, it's a, it's a Canadian sect of a native tribe that lives in Nikolai. Okay. And, and Nikolai is just a cutout on the water. It has a landing strip. And there's probably about 75 houses or so with, and they're shacks, man. I mean, your barn behind the range there is nicer than what these guy, people live in. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's that depressed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so they were, um, there was four guys working on the water. And when we rolled up, they looked over and saw us there, you know, white people showing up, um, and, and they're and they're like, hey, that's that musher lady, and, and and so you know we're in the middle of nowhere, and they recognize her, and then another one walks over and goes, yeah, that's the one who broke her back, and then the third one goes, yeah, that's Karen, and they even say her name right because most people will call her Karen, and it's Karen, yeah. and and they knew exactly who she was, and it opened up the doors because I mean even a guy went and changed his hat. Um, and came back over asking us if we needed some help and put an Iditarod hat on because they volunteer uh, during the race to help because uh, that is a big staging point for people. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny, Frank. You know, you you, uh, you you know you you meet a guy, you know, who who runs Hornady in the middle of there, and then your guide is actually more famous. Exactly right. Is that the crazy and and, she's laugh, and and it's even you know, it's she's super conscious of like where we stopped. She didn't want to um, she didn't want to stop on native land at all. And there was this tiny little sliver that we stayed at one night that was a, just a a sliver of a spot that was Alaska state land. And she didn't want to risk seeing an animal that we were capable of taking home right. and take away from them. Right. You yeah, know, that's, their, that's how they live. Right. And, and, and they had a really bad salmon season. Their fish was depressed this year. Yeah. And so when, when I landed and they asked, they were like, Oh, what were you guys doing? Where did you come from? And they're questioning us. And, 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 and they asked what we saw and, and, and that, and I explained to them how we saw the moose the first night and we let it go. And, and and they they were beyond appreciative to say thank you. They're like, thank you for not taking that and wasting it, you know, or not doing this. And because I mean, I'm sure they people who might come up and think, you know, well, who's going to see me out here? I can right. get away with a whole bunch of things, you know. If I take if I take a hind quarter in the balls and then cut his head off, 
you right. know, I got to move and right. bears and everything are going to eat it. And somebody may not catch me, you know? And, and so I'm sure there's people who've tried to play that game. Um, yeah. but the, you know, the, you know, she was more worried about that conservation side of things, uh, looking at the, um, the native tribes and what was going on with them, uh, versus playing any kind of like, I want moose meat. So that was, that was cool. Then our last night we stayed in, in, um, in Nikolai right off the airport strip. We camped that night. And it was funny. We woke up that morning. We had our coffee and uh, the last of our chocolate milk or hot chocolate there. And uh, one of one of the townspeople, the natives, comes over with a full pot of coffee, asking her if she wanted coffee. And, and we're like, we had just made our own. And we're like, no, no, thank you. We have our own. But these people were coming out to see her and bringing her coffee in the morning. Well, nice. <laughs> Then like a half hour later, because we're like, gee, I hope our flight's going to come because we can text out. We had a, a Garmin in reach yeah. and it, w- it was linked to her phone. And so through the Garmin, you can send a basic message and receive messages back. Yeah, yeah. Lindy does that on his bikes when he's in Colorado. Yes, yes, exactly. So, but a woman comes over and, and she's wearing a don't tread on me hoodie. And yeah. native woman, she comes over and she's like, uh, Hey, Karen. Uh, and Karen's like, Oh, hi, how are you? And, and she's like, uh, she's like, yeah, Mark's trying to get a hold of you telling you to call this number that your flight's coming. So Mark is like the coordinator and one of the main guys for Iditarod. Right. And they use the same air service that we use. And so for the days we were out and from the first day we went out, he had been in their office and knew we were out, uh, where we were and so he was letting her know the natives and Nikolai that the plane was coming and if we needed to follow up to text this number and relay it so we had gotten relayed in the middle of nowhere where there is no internet no cell service no nothing they have like satellite radios and some kind of connection but yeah. um yeah they relayed it that way so I mean that just goes to show you how what far I, outside your comfort zone you were. Yeah, and how far, you know, how much respect the Iditarod community has. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure they're very, very tight-knit. That's, that's awesome, man. I'm glad to hear that. Well, and yeah. I know that, um, you know, that uh, you have on Sniperside in the forums under the Philcraft section, you have written an article about this, and also you've posted some pictures. I, I, the one that, that struck me the most is the one of the bear, bear track that was, like, right on top of your tent. Yeah. Yeah. I it mean, it's like had, right there. Yeah. Sounds like you had a really good trip. Now, again, um, I've known you a long time. So I would be remiss. Did you see Bigfoot? Well, I saw Bigfoot track. All right. But they, they were definitely there. Um, but they, you know what? You could easily confuse them if yeah. the water eroded them just right. Now, we didn't, like I said, her and I were beyond chatty. Um, So we were making a ton of noise. Uh, If there is anything but Bigfoot country, this was it. Yeah. And the only thing I can say is in this context, all my Bigfoot views were definitely there. But easily, I posted one picture up there that easily looks like a full-size Bigfoot footprint because of the you don't see any toes in it, but it has an extended heel. 
and the yeah. only the single set of toes are visible. Mm-hmm. And so it's super easy to confuse that. But I'm going to tell you what, this, this, I mean, you hear a lot. I mean, you're up all night and you're listening and you hear stuff crashing. Is that a moose yeah. in his antlers? Is that this? Is that that? But I mean, this stuff is Bigfoot country like no other place. Let me tell you. So if Bigfoot is alive, that's where he would be. Uh, if I was Bigfoot, I'd be there because, you, I mean, you can hide easy without a lot of effort. You got a ton of food. Um, and we did now, I'm going to say this. We came around one cor- corner and she goes, ooh, that's skunky. Yeah. And as we came through, the smell was really bad. She goes, I don't know if that's a gut pile or something. But to me, it didn't sound like meat. It smelled skunky like she initially. And mm-hmm. it was so pugent. Here's my thinking now. Yeah, we crossed the Bigfoot area. The smell, I'm, I'm not going gut pile, man. I've smelled dead animal and all that. We've killed plenty of stuff and been around when things die. That's a distinct smell to me. Yeah, something this, different. Yeah, this was swamp slash skunk in an area there wasn't a swamp. And how, if I was living there in the woods, how would I want to repel this number of bears when the bears are that big themselves? Yeah. You're going to have to repel a bear by smell. Mm-hmm. You want to be so nasty, the bear is not going to give you the time of day. Yeah. And when we came around this, this was the last day and when we stayed in that little sliver area by native land and the natives all have the history. I mean, they had totem poles there. Um, you know, they're warding off evil. They go mm-hmm. back and they want to tell you cause they made the point of telling us the stories of them moving in this area, how their migration, they want you to know when you show up, this is our land that goes back to so long ago that my ancestors moved across this terrain and settled in this spot and how we did it under what conditions. Yeah. So they're superstitious about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that skunky smell would be your best and almost the perfect line of defense if you had to live in an area surrounded by a bear. Yeah. So Did I, you go that's back? my story. Oh, absolutely. And we're probably going to, she wants to do a, um, a yearly adventure, uh, her and I, and if other people come, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, we're definitely going to be looking at some other adventures. I'd like to do that Sheen Jack and go a little bit further north, maybe, or somewhere in there. Um, the weather was perfect. Like I said, it got cold the last two days, three days. It was when we ran into uh, the, the change where it dropped below 20, you know, down to 20 degrees. Because we had frost inside the tent on the um, last two mornings. Mm-hmm. And so to have frost inside the tent, we had to be below 20-ish yeah. uh, for it to work that. Because we just had a summer tent. I mean, the, the right. entire top was open with vented. Yeah. Um, if, we, if we took the rain cover off, you could see out, out through the, the yeah. netting. Yeah, I'm familiar um, with that. Yeah, yeah. So um, <clears throat> we didn't have a tent that was really good for the for – the, but we, we caught the change perfect. I had a zero degree bag. She had a minus 60 degree bag. We were both using wiggy bags. Um, and then I had a, a, like a thermal rest ground mat, an air mat. 
and uh, she had her cot um, that kept her off the ground. So th- that worked out pretty well um, when it comes to that. Uh, man, it, it sounds like you had a you had a hell of an adventure, man. I, I'm glad I'm glad you did it. You know, you and I go way back, and I was I was really surprised when you told me you were going to do this, and then and and delighted for you at the same time. And uh, I'm glad I'm glad it was. I'm sure this experience turned out to be much, much, much more than you even expected that it would be. Yeah, like I was saying, the education. I mean, it, I saw it as a scouting mission, and and the education that I received. Like I said, the, the early on the water. I mean, watching and seeing how the water. And, and she was awesome to point that out. It's like, hey, the water's going this. And I, I have to say too, she's embarrassed by this. Um, she does it. She just goes and, 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 and does her thing, and she's not a guide. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? She's not taking people out on a regular basis. She moves out and does this mostly on her own. She's been out uh, with, with, you know, her former partners and, and, and people that she's known one-on-one that way. And, and they're Alaskans. This is what they do. But you know, I, she, she sort of underestimates the, the, her ability in some ways because she sees things that I wouldn't see. Right. You know, and, and yeah. she goes, I kind of feel a little weird about the attention I'm getting because I just do this. Yeah. And I get it. I get that. Um, um, again, she, she, she basically neuters all my movie references. Cause I was like, you're like weird science compliments, embarrassment, you know, <laughs> and she don't get it. It's like, God damn, all my shit's lost on you. <laughs> um, but, you know, but I mean, if Frank was dropped off on that airplane and floated down that river by himself, I would have probably either be underneath a log pile right now or eaten by a bear. Yeah. Or trying yeah. to figure out how I'm bringing a dead bear body back. Right. Exactly. You know, because um, I, you know, I'll, I would have bought a heavy, I probably would have bought a, um, a semi-auto 308 if I was by myself. And I, you know, with a couple of mags and I would have been pumping fucking rounds into shit fast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. she knew too. She knew I was going to pull the trigger. She, yeah. She's, she's like, um, she, she's like, ah, don't shoot that guy. Um, cause she could see it in my eye. And a couple of times I told her stories, you know, we're talking a lot and I, and I told her about some of the rifles only days and, 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 you know, the evil leprechaun stuff. Mm-hmm. And she goes, I saw a flash of leprechaun in your eye. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, don't uh, kill him. Well, she hit, she hit the nail on the head. Yeah, yeah. She goes, I saw that, what you were doing. And, yeah. and, 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 and so I, I was laughing and everything with that. But um, to me, it was, it was good to clear my head with some of the, the, you know, the domestic stuff I had going on. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it gave me, honestly, how I felt the entire time was probably the biggest motivator. I mean, aside from the education, being able to to land in a spot with a huge amount of animal traffic, to see the alleys and the lanes they're using, and then every time, you know, we wanted to see something, we were able to see something. But the, the other thing, you know, reading the water and doing all that was good, but knowing the temps were going to go down below 30, and I felt great. My gear was where I needed it to be. I, I brought up probably an, one jacket too many. And I definitely had an extra pair of long johns in case I did go into the water. I, I had a full extra pair of kit. 
Yeah. Um, just in case I went in the water. Um, yeah, so you have to. Yeah, and then I did have a spear jacket. I had an extra soft shell that I probably didn't need with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if it rained during the day when we were paddling, I would want that soft shell maybe even over the rain gear that I brought because the movement would have been a little easier and a soft shell might have been fine. Yeah. Um, so that was really it. But I honestly, I, I, I felt good. Um, I, I didn't have any issues like that. Movement was no problem. Uh, the scouting that we did do and the moving around we did do, you know, I was in good shape with all that. So knowing I could be out there and survive, I mean, I had, I started the fire up. Uh, again, I just brought a emergency, uh, the, the storm matches. Mm-hmm. And I needed them. It was windy when we started the fire. We only had a fire one night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed the storm matches. But I was able to go and, and we had we had assist the blocks, you know, the um, the blocks to start a fire. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't use, yeah, I didn't use them. I, I basically mm-hmm. said, well, let's try it with the sticks and what I have natural right now. If I can't get it started because, you know, it burns out, we'll, we'll go to the block and then I'll file. But I was able to cruise up with a fire, no problem. Um, plenty of driftwood everywhere. So getting wood was, was no issue. Drinking water was good. Um, you know, yeah, down here you're, you're probably going to have to carry water purification. Up yeah, there, sure. it, it wasn't an issue. Uh, yeah. So that was the only thing. Highly recommend the jet boil. Yeah. Uh, it, it's fast it's light it does everything the canisters for fuel lasted uh the entire time um and they're tiny and, and so the jet boil i thought was better than the coleman but she had the coleman stove with the propane so we used it that's what right. we did, did our frying pan on most of the time uh but it, to me we we agreed like when we when we assessed our kit after uh number one on the list to get rid of and replace with something smaller uh, is the Coleman. I probably would just get the plate attachment for the jet boil. Yeah. Uh, you know, otherwise just carry ramen, man. I can carry ramen and put stuff into it that way or make a, a stew in the cup, but it's smaller portions, you know? Yeah. Um, but they do have an attachment that I could put the frying pan on. Yeah. Know? That, that jet boil, they've been around a while. They got all kinds of attachments. Yeah. And it, it and, and, the padding is perfect. Like I said, you just walk over to the water, scoop it up, drop it on the boil. It, within, you know, three to five minutes, it's boiling up pretty well, and you can do whatever you have to do with it. I did my uh, potatoes with uh, to get them from dehydrated, uh, and then uh, our coffees and, uh, and hot chocolates. And even if it gets too cold, because for her, they all do hot water when they're doing the race. They're okay. given hot water to put into their um, containers. So okay. they'll boil up hot water, then use that. And then as they run, it freezes up or gets colder for them, you know, right. um, kind of a soupish type of thing. But uh, the other thing I would recommend, and to me, this would be, I'd want not just my like 10 mil Glock. Mm-hmm. I'd want a suppressed 22 pistol. Yeah. Because we saw grouse everywhere. Yeah. And, and she was like, man, if I had that grouse, we'd have some chicken and bacon, you know, because we had bacon with us. But yeah. We, we could have popped the grouse in the head because, I mean, you get super close to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't going to shoot a freaking grouse with a 10 mil. 
right. yeah, make a mess of it, you know. But um, we could have got easily popped a grouse in the head, had that for dinner, and and moved along with grouse because uh, they're everywhere. So I would say, you know, from the hunting rifle side, uh, you know, carry your hunting rifle, but I'd want to suppress 22 out there too, at least one. And yeah. then this lever action thing, man, she's a lefty, so the lever action makes sense. Mm-hmm. The barrel and caliber combination to me makes none. Yeah. Uh, I really think, I mean, I'm trending towards, and one of my students, you know, proved it, that the 6.5 by or 6.5 PRC is your ultimate caliber right now. If we had only one caliber in the world, and people always talk about this scenario, I'm going to start a little drama with you. Um, the 6.5 PRC is the ultimate caliber. It'll do everything people talk about. Maybe not a hundred percent, but it's probably the highest percentage we've ever had. Now, in Alaska, you're probably going to want a 300 PRC over the six five. However, that said, I have a student who's on his eighth moose with a six five shooting one forty. Yeah, in the surprise. <clears throat> I, whenever I first went on my first six millimeter Creedmoor barrel, I went over and, and got a couple of nail guy with it. I mean, one shot kills right away. I mean, it's, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I'm not surprised that they did that. Uh, uh, as for the, as for the, the legacy guns, it was the Monday before Thanksgiving last year. Uh, I shot an elk with a 4570 lever action at iron sights, but I just wanted to do that. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, yeah, I, I don't get me point. wrong. I, I get there's there's some lever guns that are coming out with now. You can do the stainless steel ones, and you can put a red dot on it. I mean, if you have a lever gun on it, it needs a red dot. Yeah. And and end of story. Just put your red dot. And if you're gonna go, and if I was gonna go through the woods, then then you got the argument. But for seven years, I've been going up to Alaska, mm-hmm. and every time I tell them, use this. They argue, no, you need this, you need that, you got to knock them down, you don't understand the animals, you don't do this, and they'll fight me with it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And now, <laughs> one of the students, this this guy who just got his, he just got a moose this week, and he goes, oh, I got my eighth one with the six five. I said, dude, I told you guys this in class, and even he argued with me in the beginning. I said, the speed wins, because this thing's 2,400 feet per second. If you yeah. take that 140 and you're 3,000 feet per second, yeah. you won. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 there was more than enough occasion uh, off of that river to get a 450-yard shot. Yeah. And there is no way on the planet I would have ever tried that with her lever gun. No, no, it's too far for a lever gun. They're, well, they're not made for that, though. You know what I mean? They're made right. for, I mean, they're, they're made for that up close and, and personal style hunting. And that's, you know, that's done a lot. Um, like I said, the only reason I did it is just because I wanted to be able to say that I did. Uh, but you know, that, I mean, I've been, I've been hunting with, you know, the, the 308, obviously, you know, for, for years. And, uh, and then, you know, now the, the six, five and even the six and that speed kills, man. Roy Weatherby had it right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to me, if you take like a 22 inch proof barrel, um, you know, 
I, like I said, up there, I would probably trend to a 300 PRC, but you're still mm-hmm. going to get some decent velocity out of it. More than 2,400 with a 225 grain bullet. Oh yeah, sure. I, I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a factory Hornaday 225 match grain. I'm gonna put it in a 22 inch proof research with a stock that fits me and that's comfortable. Yeah, I'll do like a Manners carbon fiber or something. I'm not gonna do a chassis gun, uh, but I'll put it in a, a carbon fiber stock. And mm-hmm. I, you know what, dude? I mean, after looking at like all of that stuff, even the, the guys fucking saying, "Well, hunting, I want the light rifle. I want seven pound." Dude, they're pussies. I'm a, I'm sorry. I'm gonna say it. If, <laughs> if you're telling me you're gonna go out and you want you need to have a seven pound gun, you're a fucking pussy. I I, I mean, it, you can carry that gun. You can carry yeah. a, a ten pound, twelve pound gun that's gonna open up your opportunities. And still kill everything that needs to be killed up there. You're going to have good muzzle velocity and predictability. Because, I mean, this is where guys listen at the 100, 150, 200 yard thing is because these they're lobbing these bullets, the big fat bullets so slow. Yeah. The, the the drop and drift. When I looked it up on that 358, did not go in order like we think. You know, 100 yeah. to 200 to 300. It's like right. 100 to 200 is A, and then 200 to 300 is K. Yeah. It's like, we're having the rest of the alphabet, dude. It's gone. So if you don't know that, that's why you're missing. So, I mean, modern tech, and I know, like, the guys now we see, the, the hunter class, the you know, the Satterleys, and doing that stuff, they're showing that, yeah, you want a little bit better of the custom hunting rifles, and I don't take away from any of those guys. I'm talking more the ones who want to use an assault carbine versus the ones who are, who are building the bolt actions and, and using the proof stuff. Those guys have it right. Those guys are, are correct in saying, let's have this, let's open up our opportunities. The guns, I, if I had a 12 pound gun out there, I would have been fine. I could, I, I mean, I, I did plenty of miles. I, I, I walked up and down the rivers with the gun and, and held all that. And, and, you know, even the sheep on the other side, because the sheep hunters argue with me all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like, I saw where those sheep were. I can get to those sheep and I can get a six, 800 yard shot on those guys. And because of the angle, it's going to be a little bit less anyway. Yeah. And there was no falling off the other side of the mountain. They're going to stay on this side of the mountain where they were in this case. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's an argument where you see them on the top of something a little smaller and there's a potential if you shoot them and don't hit them right and they do their little hop and jump to the wrong place, you might have to go up and get them. Yeah, you might have to go up and get them, but if you were going to shoot them where I was, they're coming down to you more than likely. Or if they die in place, yeah, you got to walk up there, but you know what? You can ground your rifle if you had to. If you're going to, I mean, because you're probably going to be clawing on it. Um, It's that Deep, uh, you're, you're probably going to need both hands to get up the mountain to begin with, but the distance is there. Yeah, for you to take opportunity of of you know a twelve pound gun uh, versus trying to get something down to eight pounds. Um, I, I don't see the, the the argument anymore for why you need an eight pound hunting rifle. I think a twelve pounder is better. And well, I, went to, I went to New Zealand with an Accuracy International and 300 Win Max. I knew that, and I, I know the star story. I don't know if you want to tell it, but I know. <laughs> if you could tell everybody else, 
<laughs> nah, I'll get to it another time. We're, yeah. we're running pretty long on this one. Yeah, we are. But I'm talking. But no, but I, I mean, like I said, I don't take away. But in, in the to me, and if you're a lower 48 guy, that six five CRC, that's your one gun to do. I mean, you can compete with it. You can ELR with it. You can hunt with it. That's going to be your 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 fix. But she got advice that went back to 1950. Oh yeah. Yeah, we talked about that earlier. Yeah, and and we got to stop. And the same thing with reticles, man. The scope reticle, a duplex reticle needs to go away. Maybe we need to design a new, more coarser, mill dot or mill style reticle for a hunter. But we have to have to give the hunter a better tool if they're going to use a a rifle scope. So, because wind was still out there. We had 12 mile an hour wind. And, oh, yeah. you know, a three, 400 yard shot with that 200 grain bullet going 2,400 feet per second is going to move in the wind. And, and why would you not be armed with that information the way we are when you're going out to take an actual life on an animal? Why not get that one shot, one kill instead of, oh, I got to give him, you know, a coup de gras on the head with my handgun because you fucked yeah. it up. Well, I think yeah. what, what happens is you got, you know, someone like me, I, I live I live with a foot on both sides of this fence, you know, the, the mm-hmm. competitive long-range training as well as hunting. And, you know, I've, I've always hunted, you know, with, um, you know, with superior equipment. But, you know, it, it's, um, it, I did some stuff for Outdoor Life uh, years back, and it was like the hunters who came to those forces. They were, they were running, you know, good stuff. They were running, you know, good calibers, 300 wind mags, <clears throat> things like that. And, you know, they had, you know, they had mobile reticles in there, but a lot of them don't. And the thing, and I think it's just a, a lack of education that they don't even know that it's out there. And it's like, I've always been of the opinion that, you know, the, the really high quality hunting bullets that you go and buy off the shelf, you know, that, you know, that they have the best terminal performance ever. And I think that that was, I think that was necessary because there's so many people I know, you know, that, that shoot and or hunt that, you know, the only time they shoot is deer and deer season. That's it. You know what I mean? They don't, they don't train with their guns or anything else. You know, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've sighted in guns for, you know, for people that, you know, are hunting down here in this region. And it's just like, well, when's the last time you picked this gun up? Well, you know, what deer season last year. So, okay. Uh, how come you haven't just at least gone to the range or trained with it or even know how to zero it? You know, and it's like the, the shooting part of it isn't for them, you know, and, and that's why a lot of animals get killed and everything else that are, are get wounded um, because they're not hit right. And I think that's how come those, those hunting bullets had to have that good terminal performance because the people that were shooting at the animals weren't necessarily hitting the vitals the way they needed to. But again, that's a, that's a conversation for another time. So I know we can go on that one for a couple of hours. Yeah. And, 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 that's some, and she's not a hunter that way. You know what I mean? She right. hasn't right. been on an official, but you can hire a guide who's going to mitigate your risk, increase your success and point somebody like you saying, who's only shot 10 rounds in the year into an animal and say, Hey dude, there's your animal. Go ahead and, and you know, hundred yards, 50 yards, 25, whatever. He knocks it down. And then he shows up back home. He's got a house full of heads under yeah. those scenarios. And those are the people guys are saying, Hey, how did you do it? Well, it wasn't him. It was the guy, yeah, you know, sure. it, I mean, yeah, if I have a, you know, if I have an assault rifle at 50 yards and that's where the guy takes me to the animal, well, I'm going to be successful. But again, if that, if that, if all you ever saw was an animal at four or 500 yards, 
there was no way you were going to take it and be successful unless you switch your equipment up. And, and yep. today we should be looking at that a little bit different where we're not using, you know, the, the, the <coughs> it's, it's assault rifle and precision rifle. We should yeah. be using a precision rifle as a hunting rifle. And unless you're in thick, thick bush where you know you're never going to be past 100 yards, do you need the assault rifle? But if you are, absolutely take the assault rifle. Gotcha. Greg, yeah. we need to close this out. Yeah. up on two hours. Oh, cool, man. I'm a talky guy, man. Hopefully people will dig it. Can we get you back? Yeah, absolutely, dude. Okay. Sounds good, brother. We're going to have to have to close this one out. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming and spending the time and telling us about your trip. It was, it was really good. And I'm glad you went and did it. And, uh, and I, it does my heart good to know that you're going to be doing it again in, in the following years. Yeah, we'll be doing more of it and, and we'll, we'll increase the hunting side of it. I'll, I'll go take something. All right. So nice. that, that'll, that'll happen. <laughs> cool. We'll come see us. We'll get you on a white tail down here. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, brother. Dave, I, I left you out of this one. Oh, no, that's fine. I've just been over here listening. I uh, I don't do a lot of this stuff anymore. I used to when I was younger, but uh, my job keeps me outside all day, every day, so I don't do as much, so I've just been listening. I guess before we go, uh, Frank, are you gonna, you're going to be, I think you're going to be at the uh, Precision Rifle Expo in October? Yes, I, I will be at the Precision Rifle Expo, and then I'll be down in Texas. I'm coming to do another uh, Bridal Iron class with Chris Roberts and Chris Rant, so... I'll be down there. We'll see you guys in November, probably. And then, um, uh, but I'll be at Precision Rifle Expo for Halloween. Awesome. I'll be there with uh, Voodoo, so we'll see you then. Uh, I, uh, I'm i trying to think. Anything's, uh, uh, thanks, like WeBad, uh, Leopold, Magpul, uh, XLR reached out to me today with some stuff. So hopefully I have some, some good stuff for that in the future. Uh, Voodoo, as always. Uh, Jacob, you got anybody you want to shout out to before we go? They called you called them most of them already. I mean, it's just been it's been good. Uh, it was uh, it was good to see the guys from Applied Ballistics up in up in Minnesota. They were they were very uh, cordial with us. It was it was nice to visit with them too. All right, uh, Frank. Anything else? No, nope, that's it for me. All right, thanks again, Frank. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, you guys, man. Have a great one. Thanks, everybody out there. Cheers. Cheers.